Thank you, Catherine. How many of you are in that stage of life that Catherine is in where the kids are really little and take almost all your time? How many of you are in the adolescence phase? I always say to people in Catherine's phase, you'll sleep some, just not a lot. Uh, then I say in adolescence, the parents never sleep, okay? Uh, how many of you have adolescent age children? Yeah. How many of you have adult children? Good. How many of you um, have a mother? Every hand in the place. Whether our mother is still with us or our mother has passed, we'll never forget mother. It's one thing that we all share. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, Marie and I saw a film that was quite penetrating, and it was called Lion. How many of you have seen Lion? It was up for the Academy Award. A tremendous film, isn't it? And it's the story of a little Indian boy who gets separated from his mother and brother in one part of India, and he's catapulted 1,200 miles away to another part of India where he doesn't even speak the language and he doesn't know how to get home. And so he's literally separated from his family system and he almost dies and he's al it's, it's just horrendous what he goes through. You also learn a lot about um, some of today's India. Uh, he is saved, however, by a mother and a father who adopt him from Australia. And so he is taken from India to Australia where this wonderful adoptive mother and father take care of this little boy and they raise him into a fine man. And yet at the same time, his heart is still longing, wondering who his real mother is. He has little flashbacks of memory. And so together they go on a search to help him find his biological mother. At the end, it's one of the most penetrating and moving endings of a film that we have ever seen. And part of the reason for that is, is at the end of it all, we all long for something even beyond our own biological or adoptive parents. We long for God as Father and God in the fullness of His image, male and female. And you're just weeping because really it's a metaphor of, of being joined with God in heaven. It's just, just wonderful. Got me thinking a lot about motherhood, however, and the term that I want to use, I'll call it mother-ness, because there's a point I want to make right out of the gate. Motherhood is not only biological. There are adoptive mothers. There are stepmothers. There are godmothers. There are mothers-in-law. I can't wait to go see Eleanor in three weeks, Marie's mom, because my mom's already passed. She's my mother now. There are grandmothers. There are foster mothers. There are grannies. There are nannies. There are national mothers, if you will. Golda Meir was considered the mother of all of, of modern Israel. Angela Merkel, I know from talking to German friends, they see her as not just their, their president, they see her as the mother of the nation. In our own nation, just very recently, uh, one of the great poets of American history, Maya Angelou, she was considered the mother of our nation in many ways. Had tremendous impact, especially on her African-American brothers and sisters, especially young ones who look to her for so much identity. There's, there's something 
about motherness and fatherness that exceeds and goes beyond biology. Um, one of my friends who helps me research sermons sent me a verse that I know I've read many times but never saw. Have you had some of those? You've read them but never saw it. And it's Psalms 113.9. Let's read that. This is God speaking. He settles the childless woman in her home as a mother of children. He settles the childless woman in her home as a mother of children. Motherness is a unique feminine aspect of the nature of God whereby women portray a motherness that goes way beyond flesh and blood. You've probably had women in your life who have portrayed this role for you. It's part of the feminine mystique is motherness. It has to do with nurture. It has to do with the ability to gather. It has to do with protecting. It has to do with communicating. Most of all, it has to do with giving life to others. There's, this is interesting. God and women share what God and men don't share. Giving life. So whether through a biological birth or through being an aunt or a niece or a cousin or a nanny or an adoptive parent or a foster parent, ladies, young women, please understand there's something special about you that is so special about you, men don't have it. All of you are going, we know that. But it goes even farther than this. Motherness is a part of Godness. In the, in the scriptures, God often likens his own love for humanity by using female metaphor. In Isaiah 66, 13, he says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you. Isaiah 49, 15, God says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And it's a rhetorical question. Of course not. She will care deeply. Then God says, so too, I will not forsake you. I will never forget you. Jesus even uses the metaphor of motherness to define himself. When he is praying for the people of Israel, especially Jerusalem, Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That is Jesus, if you will, portraying the motherness of God to bring in, to protect, to provide, to hold on to, to nurture. When God created human beings, he created them, he says, in his own likeness. Let's look at Genesis 1.27 for a moment. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. And then what does it say, everybody? Male and female, he created them. The, the, the essence of God's ownness are massive attributes of sovereignty 
of goodness, of immutability, unchangeable, of omnipresence, omnipower, et cetera, et cetera. But also a part of God is this unique thing that we can't fully understand. We are created in his image and likeness in our specific male and femaleness, a part of God. There are things about God, one of my friends gave me this, there are things about God that men more likely display. And there are things about women. I'm sorry, there are things about God that only women rightly display. I actually think if we go back to the prodigal father over the last weeks when we've been studying that, the, the ultimate picture you get of the prodigal father is, is if you will, the more motherness of him of absolute forgiveness, of his hands upon his child's back when he comes back broken and bleeding. It's interesting, isn't it? God created us in his own likeness, male and female, he created us. So it is, if you will, through his children, God mothers and fathers the world. Through us all. Now, I can never be as motherly as Marie can be. I'm uniquely male. She can never be as fatherly as I am. But we even pick up those traits from one another to some degree. It's magical. It's beautiful. It's God. So if you take anything home with you today, this is what I would long that you take home with you. Through us, his children, God mothers and fathers the whole world. Okay? Now, we've got a story in the Bible that I'm going to use today to exemplify this to a degree. It's the story of a woman, and it's the story of, the, of a woman who is the mother of a nation, though she never mothered her own child, and her name is Esther. So if you have a Bible, please open it to the book of Esther, and if you're going to use our Bibles, it's on page 488, 488. Esther... The book of Esther is the last of the historical books in the Old Testament. It's named for her. We have two books in the Bible named for women. One is Esther, the other is Ruth. Esther's an amazing person, but you wouldn't have thought so if you saw her at the beginning of her life. If you open to Esther, uh, incidentally, I can't, there's 10 chapters, so we're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to breeze through this, and I'm going to try to make this story come briefly and mightily alive for you, all right? So in chapter 2, we run into her, and we find out these things about her. Number one, she's an orphan. Both her parents died when she was young. We know that because an, uh, an older cousin adopts her and raises her. So she comes from a, a background with no actual mother or father. Secondly, she's Jewish. And in that time, you wouldn't mention if you were a Jew because the Jews had been exiled from their homeland and they had been strewn throughout the major civilizations of the world. This is about 100 years after Judah and Israel were fully captured and they exiled the leading peoples. She's probably a third or fourth generation Jewish daughter from a prominent family, but all that's been washed away. She's now an orphan all alone until her cousin finds her and adopts her. If you were Jewish, you wouldn't admit it 
because Jews weren't highly esteemed. Some people were afraid of them, and some people thought they were just too different. They, they, they dressed differently. They ate differently. Uh, they valued different kinds of dress and, 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 and all patterns of life. They just weren't like the Persians. And now I move from Esther, who is a Jewess in Persia, the most dominant civilization in the world. From about the years 550 B.C. to about 330 B.C., they literally ran the known world. The empire of Persia went all the way from the borders of India all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, as far north as Turkey, because they, they jurisdicted over all of Turkey, what we call Turkey, and all the way down, and they controlled even Egypt. They were a mighty power. They ruled the world. And it so happens that at this time, approximately 480 B.C., in the midst of the Persian Empire, a little girl named Esther is born. And a loving cousin says, I won't let her be in an orphanage. I'll raise her as my own. And so there you have it, Esther and Mordecai. The king at that time's name is Xerxes. And now you're going to see that we run into what we call a life change trajectory. You know what those are? The, the, a, a life change trajectory is when you thought your life was going by at a certain pace and something happens and, and disrupts it and changes your trajectory. I still remember when it happened to me at 18. I'd been a follower of Jesus for two years. I started attending my first church, and I'll never forget when the senior pastor of that church said when I was no more than a two-year-old Christian baby at 18, he said, hey, I don't have a youth director right now. Would you take over for the summer? I said, me? I hardly know anything about God yet. Yeah, but kids like you, and I think you love Jesus. <laughs> okay, nice summer job. 45 years later, I'm still trying to bring people to Jesus Christ. It was a life change trajectory. This is what happens to Esther and Mordecai. You see, the king needed a new wife. And so heralds were sent throughout all 127 provinces of the massive Persian Mede Empire, and uh, the loveliest young ladies from every region were brought to Susa, the capital, where they would then have a year of uh, health care, fitness training. They, they followed uh, P90X. And... and and they got them as fit as they could and in as shape as they could. And, and the goal was that the king would choose one of them to be his next wife. As far as I can tell, one of them didn't want to go. Right in the middle of Susa, very happily to keep low, Esther was chosen. Now, you need to know that Esther's name in the Persian can mean two things. Esther can mean star, it also means hidden one. Remember, she was Jewish. She was an orphan child. But she was really pretty. 
And so she herself was brought into the harem. It's hard to tell for sure, but if you read chapter 2 closely, you say she wasn't like the other girls. I don't think she really wanted this because, you know, uh, Miss Persia was there, Miss Israel was there, Miss Babylon was there, Miss Universe was there, uh, Miss Galaxy was there, uh, Donald Trump was there. And from what you pick up by the way she is embraced by even the people in the palace, she was loved because she wasn't really into all of that. And yet God will use her. She is chosen. And the one who didn't want it becomes the queen of Persia. Wow. Interesting, isn't it? Well, plot thickens. The rest of chapter 2 moves on. And remember, Mordecai is her cousin who raised her as if she was his own child. And and Mordecai was also a low-level bureaucrat in the Persian Empire government. And one day, Mordecai overhears a discussion between two of the top-level generals, and the generals are saying that they're going to assassinate Xerxes, and take over the empire. Why? We don't know. But at this very period of time, the the marriage of Esther to Xerxes was no more than two years after Xerxes had lost a mighty battle against the Greek empire. He wanted to take over Greece too, and he got pushed back. It could be that that's what was underneath this. And from that point on, the armies wanted to get rid of him. We don't know. Mordecai overhears the discussion of assassination. Mordecai gets to uh, uh, Esther, and he says, Esther, you've got to tell the king this. Esther gets to the king and tells this to the king and says, Mordecai has heard this. Investigation takes place. Assassins are brought out in the open, and they are impaled on a pole, and they are killed, and Xerxes keeps his crown, and life goes on. Remember that because it comes into important play a little later on. Incidentally, where is God in the book of Esther? It's the only book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned. And yet, you will see the fingerprints and the handiwork of God moving individual and literally global events according to just what he wants to do. Incredible. That's the first one. Next thing happens is in chapter 3. A bad guy gets power. His name is Haman. Haman rises. It's approximately 474 B.C. And and Haman has become number two in the whole nation. And Haman really likes himself a lot. And he believes that wherever he walks, everyone except the king, of course, should bow. And everyone does except for Mordecai because Mordecai worships the one God. And so Haman will walk by in all of his grandeur and this lower-level Persian diplomat just goes, hey, Haman, how are you doing? But he doesn't go like this. Haman gets frazzled. He's furious. How dare he not bow before the prime minister of the Persian Empire. Something like that. (laughs) But there's more going on here. 
It's not just his own pride and ego. The hatred runs deep. He has learned that Mordecai is from the Jewish race. He despises the Jews. We wonder why. A lot of people didn't like them, but he's not going to be satisfied to just kill Mordecai for this. He wants to destroy the whole Jewish race. Why? Because he is related to the Amalekites who were the first group of people that attacked the nation of Israel as it came out from Egypt, out of the Red Sea. The Amalekites sought to destroy the Jews at that point. The only reason they didn't is Moses holds up his staff, Aaron and Hur have his arms, and the, ar the untrained armies of Israel destroy the Amalekites. God said at that time, until the end of time, the Amalekites will seek to destroy the Jews. Catapult later. Go down 500 years from Moses, about the year 1000, a king by the name of Agag, who was an Amalekite, seeks to destroy Saul's armies, which will soon be David's armies, and seeks to do damage against them. And God says, destroy Agag and every single one of his progeny. And the Jews win the battle, but they don't destroy all of his progenies. Catapult later. Another 500 years. Now we're at about 400 B.C. Haman is titled Haman the Agagite. He is from the progeny line of Agag, of the Amalekites, who from time immemorial, immemorial, something like that, said we will destroy them. There's something much hatred, bitterness, shuts down time. If there's someone you hate, someone that you're really, really angry with, if you don't take care of that, you'll be as angry with them in 50 years as you are today. Time will stop. That's why forgiveness is essential. Doesn't happen to Haman. He's going to kill Mordecai, and he's going to kill the whole race of the people, and so he makes his move. He comes before the king, and without mentioning the term Jews to the king, he says, uh, Xerxes, there is a people group that are not good for us. They dress differently. They separate themselves. They, they, they worship a God in kind of a strange way. It would be a whole lot better if we didn't have them in our country. And the king goes, really? Are they dangerous? They're very dangerous. But I have a plan. I would like to obliterate the Jews from the face of the earth in every country in which they exist. And your highness, I will be glad to fund it. And he offers the king 375 tons of silver to get the job done. And Xerxes says, well, then go ahead. We don't even think Xerxes knew that his wife was Jewish at this time. Goes on. And guess who found out about it? Mordecai. <laughs> Guy's got ears everywhere. He's the one that saw that the king was going to be assassinated. He's the one that gets wind of this now. Well, how could he miss? Signs are being posted throughout Susa. Couriers are being sent out that says, on such and such a day in the month of Adar, eradicate the Jewish race from the planet. They go out to all 127 provinces. The only person that hadn't heard about it was Esther. She's the queen. She's separated from all that. 
Mordecai is in sackcloth and ashes, and he sends a message to Esther. It says, Esther, haven't you heard what's going to happen? We're going to be destroyed. You must go to the king. And she says, I don't think I can. It's the, against the law for, the, for me to even appear before the king if he hasn't called me. I'm not to even look upon his face unless I'm called. And then if I might add this, and we've been married about five years. He doesn't call me as much as he used to. I'm just thinking that's in there. And that's where I want to read the text with you. Turn to chapter 4, 12 through 17. Chapter 4, 12 through 17. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and all of your father's family will perish. And then the central verse of Esther, which we had on the screen for you for the theme of the day, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position at such a time as this. Who'd have thought that a little orphan girl from a despised race of people would be catapulted to such a point where she might save hundreds of thousands of people. Esther responds to Mordecai. He had been her mentor from when she was young. He is her mentor still. Esther sent this reply, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa, fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the laws. And if I perish, I perish. I love that. She, who was never a biological mother, is now adopting her people. It may cost her her own life. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And now, slipping through the next five chapters, here's what occurs. Lon Allison giving it to you fast and quick, but in such a way you'll never forget it. All right. So, Esther goes before the king. He has a golden scepter, and only if the king raises that scepter and points can a person come to him. She, she comes out probably looking as beautiful as she could. She's a distance away, probably 100 to 200 feet. He puts it out there, and in he goes, Esther, come. <laughs> she hadn't seen him for 30 days. She comes forward. And the king says to her, this is really romantic. This is the, the romantic stuff. <laughs> Esther, I'd, I'd like to sing a romance song here of some kind. Let's see. Esther, what a difference you make in my life. Okay. So, <laughs> Esther, come forward. What is it that you request? You can have up to half of my kingdom. He likes her. She says, 
surprisingly. Hey, um, well, thank you. Uh, glad I'm still alive. Uh, <laughs> it would please me so much, Your Majesty, if you would come and have a banquet with me in my rooms this night and bring Haman with you. Yeah, you got it. That's right. Bring Haman with you. Okay, and that's what happens. Haman's hearing all this. He's the prime minister. He goes home flowing and glowing. He is so excited. I have the ear of the king, and I have the favor of the queen. Ha-ha! You know, I'm really something. But he walks past Mordecai on the way home. Mordecai didn't bow. And so he goes home, and he's really glad, and he's really mad. And at this point, his wife and advisor say, you should kill him tomorrow. You have the king's ear. You go to the king tomorrow after the banquet, and you literally say, Mordecai is a Jew, and he needs to be wiped out. Oh, yeah, I'll do it. So they go to the banquet. The banquet is great. The king says, now, what is it, what is it Esther, that you wanted from me? And, and Esther says, well, if it would please the king, please come again tomorrow night for a banquet you and Haman, and I promised to present my request at that time. I asked Marie last night, why do you think that happened? And because I said, well, maybe she was just scared, you know, to point out that she was a Jew and the whole race was going. Marie said, no, I think that king needed two nights of buttering up. <laughs> Don't know why. Don't know why. But the next banquet takes place the next night. Now, before the banquet, during the night between the first banquet and the second, the king can't sleep. Huh. He calls for a book to read. He had a nook. It had John Grisham on it. He said, that'll keep me awake. So they brought him the history books of his reign, and he's going through the history annals, the, the, the scrolls, and he goes, oh, yeah, I forgot about this. Five years ago, my life was saved in an assassination attempt by, the, by Mordecai, the Jew. Mordecai the Jew? Huh. He calls his advisors to him. It's in the middle of the night. Hey, did I do anything for that guy when, when he saved my life? They said, no, you didn't. And, and now it's early in the morning. Guess who got to the palace as early as he could that second day? Haman. This is when he's going to ask for Mordecai's head. He'll be impaled. On a, on a stake. He knows he'll get it. He's there early. And so when the king says, is there anybody of high princely power that's, that's already here? They go, well, Haman's here. So the, the, pull Haman in. And, and then the king says, Haman, what should the king do to show his favor for someone that has done something great for him? <laughs> Haman, he means me. Yeah, the Bible says that. It means me. And so he says, well, you would, you, would, you would have him ride throughout Susa on one of your royal steeds. You would have him robed in one of your robes, and you'd have a signet crown on him that would say he, uh, that, that you show him favor. And he can see himself in all those things. And then the king says, okay, well, do that for Mordecai. I mean, you can't write this stuff. 
And so then you can just imagine, Haman has to pull the horse that Mordecai is on with the royal robe. It's only a couple hours after he finishes that for the banquet. He's not going to be able to kill Mordecai. Mordecai has been elevated now. But at least he has the banquet and the, he has the queen's favor too. And he goes to the banquet and Xerxes says, now what was it, dear Esther, up to half of my kingdom, what do you need? And she says, this is in chapter 7, you can read it later. She says, I would like my life saved. And please save my people. She's the mother of the nation. And Xerxes goes, well, what do you mean? I'm a Jew. Mordecai's a Jew. You have decreed that all Jews will be killed within the year. Please save my people. And the story goes on. They are saved. And the story goes on that pole, wooden pole that had been planted in the ground 75 feet high upon which Mordecai would be impaled will now have Haman hanging on it and all 10 of his sons will be destroyed and the Jewish people are saved and Mordecai becomes second in power and Esther is the illustrious queen and may I say mother of her people quite a story huh doesn't it make you want to go home and read all 10 chapters yeah the Jews read this story in the feast of Purim every year in in March or April when this feast falls and they read it to their children of God's provision all right let me move toward closure what's the implication for us as people well, first of all, God created us in this time, in this place, for God's purposes. None of us is going to be an Esther. None of us here, probably, will be at the level of Mordecai. But we are unexpectedly called to serve him as mothers and fathers to our world today. God uses unexpected people and he uses them right where they are. And, and it's for such a time as this. How does that work in our church? Well, lots of volunteer ways. I hope you will consider being a part of what we call the Puente Summer Program. You know, we're going to have 120 kids here who all come from uh, underprivileged households, most of them just learning English. And their parents don't know how to navigate the American systems. And we take all summer and we work with them in their education. And we give them sports. And we get to tell them about Jesus every day. You want to change the trajectory of a kid? Give a morning or a day a week to Puente this summer. You say, I don't speak Spanish. You don't have to. They are learning English and they all want to speak English. I don't know what it is for you. I just know this. God 
uses unexpected people in unexpected ways right where they are for such a time as this. What do we learn about God? Wonderful things. His name isn't mentioned in the book. He's invisible, it seems. And yet, he's invincible. Invisible? He seems that way to us at times too, doesn't he? But he's invincible. He seems silent at times, but he is unstoppable. And though his name is not there, the hand of God directs every minute and every event in the story we just heard. I think he wants us to know that he is the sovereign God. Take a look at this uh, image that I have for us. Sovereign. Ephesians 1.11, what's that mean? Here's what it means. God works everything out in conformity with his will. Everything in conformity with his will. Ephesians 1.11. You know what this means? If you know and love Jesus Christ, you need to take the words bad luck, good luck, and coincidence out of your vocabulary. Bad luck, good luck, coincidence, take them out of your vocabulary. There isn't anything that happens in this universe that God's not aware of. Now, what's the second point you see there? He's good. If he was bad, we'd all be in for it. But his goodness means, and Romans 8, 28 says this, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. That doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good, but what he's going to work out of it is good. That's his promise, and he's trustworthy. Third, why? Psalms 103, 17, from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who revere him. God's in charge, God is good, and God loves you. This means we're never alone, number one. It also means, number two, we're never in charge. That'll be hard on some of you, but face it, how well are you doing running your own life? Place your hand in his hand. Surrender and seek to be part of his plans, not asking him to be a part of yours. Third, God is never outwitted. He's providential, and that means he sees the end at the beginning. He sees all things, and he's never outmatched. The two most powerful people on the planet in this time were turned, the Bible says, and the Lord directs the king's heart in the way that a water channel is moved. There isn't anything going on in your life that God isn't over and that God won't move toward his purposes. Align yourself with his purposes. Well, let me close with this. When Esther says, if I perish, I perish, Who's that remind you of? Jesus Christ. But he will perish. When this story tells us that Mordecai is going to be impaled on the pole and Haman ends up there, who's that remind you of? Jesus Christ. 
He allows himself to be impaled upon the pole to take the Hamanness in all of us away. Oh, he is the king. He is the Lord. If you don't know him, receive him today. Let's pray. So to you, O oh God, I present these words and ask that you would use them for thy purposes. And to ask, Lord, that we might be confident in who you are as you lead our lives. For such a time as this, Lord, I pray that you will use these people at Wheaton Bible Church for your purposes in your world. Amen and amen.